Welcome back to CGSW 90.9 FM. My name is Sean Collins and I'm the host of Energy Voices. Over the next hour, we've got an action-packed agenda of people who are doing things differently in the world of energy. We're going to kick things off with an interview of two of the members of Richard Branson's $25 million Virgin Earth Challenge, and then we're going to explore the challenges and opportunities that exist in the world of clean tech entrepreneurship in India. We're going to finish things off with an interview with Lior Rothschild, who's working at making events more sustainable through his company, Dig. As always, please join us on social media by using hashtag Energy Voices on Facebook or on Twitter, and all previous episodes of the show can be found at bit.ly slash Energy Voices. Next up on Energy Voices, we're excited to welcome back the lovely Jennifer Manchin to do another episode of This Month in Energy. So take it away, Jenny. Thanks, Sean. The news in fossil fuels. This month, Mexico's president signed a bill ending 76 years of state control over the nation's oil resources. In an effort to increase foreign oil company investment, the government quickly announced that only 21% of future oil reserves would be awarded to the Mexican energy giant Pemex, while the remainder will be auctioned off to foreign firms. This move will hopefully generate the Mexican government $50 billion in oil investment over the next five years. In a creative move, a U.S. energy company exported the first crude oil shipment since the 1970 oil embargo that banned exports of U.S. crude oil. Regulations haven't changed, however, the type of oil known as condensate has skirted the regulatory definition of crude oil. The crude was headed for South Korea, and since its departure, there have been several court applications filed by similar companies looking for the same ruling on their condensate product. Energy Market Updates NRG Energy, one of the U.S.'s largest independent power producers, has agreed to purchase Goal Zero, a startup making purse-sized solar-charged battery packs, powerful enough to run the primary energy consumers in a modern home. NRG's CEO acknowledged this acquisition as a signal of the changing times for utilities with the influx of distributed generation and expansion of renewable energy. NRG will reorganize its business units with one unit focused entirely on residential customers. The International Monetary Fund has advised Canada and other oil-rich nations to improve their economies through increasing energy taxes. Canada currently sits near the bottom of the gasoline taxation scale for industrialized nations. The IMF study, published in book form, outlines a plan to pay for environmental and health costs with energy taxes. So far, the Canadian Conservative government has rejected the notion of a carbon tax and the plan proposed by the IMF. Climate change. This month, at the International Union of Architects World Congress, that represents 1.3 million architects in 124 countries worldwide, adopted the 2050 imperative, which calls for the elimination of CO2 in the built environment by 2050. This declaration represented the first time in the Union's 65-year history that all the regional councils from Europe, Asia, the Americas, and Africa were in agreement. New York is committed to reducing GHG emissions and has started a bank to prove it. This year, the state launched the $1 billion Green Bank, led by former Goldman Sachs banker Richard Kaufman. The challenge is to transform New York State's power grid that currently requires $30 billion to keep the status quo infrastructure alive over the next decade. The bank will provide gap financing. This will support private sector bankers in their efforts to fund clean tech deals. Another feature the bank will provide is the securitization of energy projects. The team behind this bank is optimistic that this incentive will spur the clean energy economy more quickly. That's this month in energy. Next up, we have an interview with David Addison and Noah Deitch of the Virgin Earth Challenge. So up next is what is sure to be one of the most fun interviews we're going to have in the world of Energy Voices. We've got Noah Deitch and David Addison, who both work for the Virgin Earth Challenge, and are going to explain to us some of the intricacies and wonderful aspects of this $25 million prize that Sir Richard Branson has put towards removing CO2 from the atmosphere. So welcome to the show, David and Noah. Thank you for having us. Perfect. So, uh, David, I'm going to get you to kick things off. Uh, give us give us the overview. What is what is the Virgin Earth Challenge? Why was it started? Why did Richard Branson kick this thing off? And and who are you? 
Sure, I'm David Edison. My background in the natural sciences, first and foremost, and then sort of uh, environmental innovation and, and enterprise and all that sort of stuff, second. And I work in the investment team at the head office of Virgin, and I also manage the Virgin Earth Challenge. So before we dive in, what inspired the Virgin Earth Challenge in the first place? Well, it was actually the idea of Richard's wife, Joan, who's a, a very down-to-earth, sensible Scottish lady. And Richard was talking to her about climate change and how there's already too much carbon in the atmosphere and how cutting carbon emissions at a global level is proving so, so difficult. And for every every passing moment of inaction, that, that future gradient of emissions reduction that you have to go on is getting increasingly steeper. I'm pretty sure those are his exact words, by the way. And <laughs> And he said... As he was saying all this, Joan sort of turned to him and said, well, you know, if there's already too much carbon in the atmosphere and most of the efforts focusing on cutting emissions in the first place, isn't there also room for some focus on physically removing some of the greenhouse gas that's already up there? And that resonated very strongly with Richard. And after talking about this notion to Al Gore, Dr. Jim Hansen, Jim Lovelock, Tim Flannery and Sir Crispin Tickell, it was agreed that that there was something in it. Perfect. And so with that inspiration, how have you guys actually structured the Virgin Earth Challenge as a competition? Well, I think a lot of the inspiration for the Earth Challenge came from the other big historical prizes for for sort of step changes in, in getting towards solving a big problem faced by the world at that time. Richard's a big fan of the Longitude Prize and and Barbara Sobel's book, Longitude, is a is a fascinating read of, of the story behind the prize for a way of determining longitude whilst you're at sea. And it's when there's such a big problem, there's such a big issue, and you're not really sure how you get to the end goal, but you know that that end goal has to be reached, then putting up these large innovation prizes around such a concept has been shown in history to be one way of trying to help stimulate innovation in that field. So so the whole mechanism of the Earth Challenge is it's a $25 million prize for when something shows itself as having enough potential across a range of factors to become a, a scalable gigaton scale way of sustainably extracting carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and, and keeping it out. Thanks for that great background, David. Noah, I'm going to kick it over to you for a quick intro on who you are and how you got involved in the challenge. Sure. So I'm currently pursuing my MBA at UC Berkeley, and I had spent the previous five years doing clean energy consulting work and decided to go to business school because while all of the, the work that we were doing was great at stopping emissions, none of the, the activities that we were doing was on actually taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And so I went to business school to try and figure out what the, the business opportunities were for, for generating negative emissions. And that's where I came across the, the Earth Challenge as one of the, the leading organizations in, in this new field and been very fortunate to work with them over the past several months on these types of questions. Thanks, Noah. I'm going to keep things with you for our first question. I really love the story of sitting around the table with the wife and saying we need to remove carbon from the atmosphere. But why is something like this actually needed? Yeah, so the the reason that it's needed is this instinct that taking carbon out of the atmosphere shouldn't be that hard is, is really misleading because it actually turns out that in order to do this at a scale and make money is is pretty challenging. And what the, the scientists are, are telling us is that in order to stay below two degrees Celsius of temperature increase over the next century, we really have to not only decarbonize our energy, transportation, and agriculture sectors, but we also have to start taking carbon out of the atmosphere at a pretty significant scale. So in terms of the, the orders of magnitude we're talking about here, we currently emit about 35 billion tons of carbon, carbon dioxide every year. And what the scientists are telling us is that we're going to have to start removing about a billion to even up to 10 billion tons per year by mid to end of the century 
in order to prevent climate change, which is a really huge task. Um, there, there are a number of different ways that we can do this. Uh, they fall into two broad categories. One is biological and the other is chemical. The, the biological ones really go back to a very ancient practice of plants taking carbon out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis. This is really what plants have been doing for billions of years, is taking carbon out through just the, the boring process of photosynthesis. It's not very efficient, but there's so much photosynthesis that goes on every year. It just swamps the amount of, of carbon emissions that, that humans produce. So if we're able to use this process to either increase the amount of, of plants that are uh, on the earth at any given time, or we're able to take these plants, use them to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere, and then store it in some other form, it could really make a, a big difference on the amount of, of carbon that we remove from the atmosphere. So what this looks like is, is really wide ranging. There are a number of techniques that involve basically farming in different ways that take the, the plants that we grow for food and for, for timber and, and use those plants to take carbon out of the, the atmosphere and sequester it in soils. So one of the Earth Challenge finalists is the Savory Institute, which promotes something called holistic land management where they basically advocate livestock ranching in a way that increases plant cover on the ground. They, they use cattle and, and sheep and other grazers to, to stimulate plant growth in, in ways that can help restore grasslands that have been degraded from centuries of, of farming in industrialized and, and mechanized ways. It gets a lot more, more complex in some of the other approaches. So, for example, um, there are some advocates that propose taking plant matter and turning it into charcoal. This is, is known as biochar, this, this end substance, if applied to soils or to land to do things such as remediate mines, can, can stay in a a carbon form, a solid carbon form for potentially centuries. And this all is taken from some of the, the work that the indigenous people in the, the Amazon did, where they created charcoals that still remain in the, the soil in charcoal form now hundreds, if not thousands of years later. The, the biggest biological approach in terms of potential likely is, is something called bioccs which is essentially taking biomass turning it into electricity in the same way that you would use a, a coal power plant you switch the coal with the biomass and then you capture the exhaust from the from this power plant you strip out the co2 and you inject that co2 deep underground you're essentially using the, the plant to pull the CO2 out of the atmosphere, and then you're using the power plant to take that CO2 and inject it deep underground. The more CO2 you, um, if you're able to regrow these plants sustainably, you're then able to, to really make negative emissions because you're growing back these plants every year. And you're taking the carbon that these plants sequester through photosynthesis and either returning them to the soil or turning them into a gaseous CO2 and injecting it deep underground where it can't escape for, for millennia. So David, any comment on what Noah just shared with us? Yeah, um, that, was, that was entirely correct. The, the, the physical action of extracting CO2 from the atmosphere can be quite challenging, but it, it's worth noting, right, that about 
half of all the anthropogenic emissions that go into the atmosphere every year already end up getting sequestered by the oceans or plants or soils or rocks and minerals and all those all those sort of natural processes. And and when you sort of have that understanding, it's not that much of a leap per se to start asking the questions of, well, if the natural world does quite a lot of this CO2 removal anyway, are there other economic activities across our, our industries and our, our sectors and across ways of making products and services and growing food and fuel and fiber that aren't just aren't just low carbon but physically remove more carbon over their life cycle than they emit. Yeah, and the whole concept of biomim- biomimicry and how we replicate the existing processes in, in natural society and in the natural environment are, are fascinating. So it's interesting to see the sort of economic model added into this. And and on that sure. And, and on that economic model, I wanted uh, a comment from you, David, just on a sense of where the economics of some of these uh, companies and the organizations working in the carbon removal space are. Uh, are companies profitable? Where are they making money? Are they making money yet? And, and I thought you'd be great to comment on that. Absolutely. I think one day you'd hope that just as there are those abatement cost curves for for mitigation activities at the moment, and sure, people argue about the specific place of different things on those curves, you still have them. You can see future scenarios where you have curves like that for carbon removal or even graphs that just have have both emissions abatement and greenhouse gas removal sort of coexisting, if you like, in the same in the same functions and markets. Generally speaking, and being very overly simplistic, the more organic, ecological-based methods today are realizing and looking to capitalize on value propositions alongside the potential to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. So, hey, guys, let's manage this farm in a more sustainable way, slash your operating costs, increase your productivity, hopefully increase your biodiversity, hedge yourself a bit more against both flooding and droughts because a more carbon-rich soil tends to hold moisture better. And oh, by the way, you're, you, you could turn your whole farm into a net carbon sink, irrespective of the other economic upsides for doing those activities. And generally speaking, as you, as you transition to the more industrial approaches, bio CCS, direct air capture, all, all those sort of ones, there are, there are markets for them today. There are arguably small voluntary markets for bioenergy with carbon capture. And there are, there are a huge range of very interesting markets for air captured CO2. But there's not yet uh, a large market demand for for the physical act of extracting CO2 from the atmosphere in and of itself. Right. And to David, to build on your point, I think the elephant in the room for all these conversations is carbon prices. That once you get high enough carbon prices, that carbon removal just becomes a, a wildly profitable thing. But looking forward over the next decade or so, carbon prices look like they'll remain volatile and low where they are implemented. So the the real key right now is how do you make money without carbon prices? And what David mentioned about generating CO2 as a co-product is is really the key or sorry as carbon removal as a co-product is is the key to these businesses. Yeah. And David is is mentioning a number of of other types of carbon removal that we haven't gotten to some of the, the chemical versions of, of CO2, which include, David said, direct air capture. These are literally machines that are essentially carbon vacuums. You can put them in the, you can site them anywhere that there is ambient air and they will take the carbon out of the atmosphere and concentrate that into a, a concentrated CO2 stream which can be used for a number of things today. So carbon is used from anything from enhanced oil recovery to carbonating the sodas that you drink to helping greenhouses increase their, their production. And so the, the opportunities to utilize CO2, they really pale in comparison to our total emissions. It's about 100 million tons globally that gets consumed compared to the 35 billion that we emit. 
But if you think of this 100 million ton market, that's pretty sizable for a small startup company. And that's really what many of these companies are. The whole carbon removal space is in a place very similar to where solar energy or wind energy was 40 or 50 years ago, which they're just realizing the need for these technologies and the potential. And the research is, has only really recently begun to to start for some of these technologies. So if you're having a conversation on whether solar was going to be profitable in the, the 1970s, it, it certainly wasn't the case. But that that really isn't the question. It's once we get the technologies to go through several of these development cycles, and once we've spent millions of dollars on research and development, what might some of these technologies look like in terms of their their profitability and, and cost competitiveness? And and to dive into that, Noah, you talked about the elephant in the room being the fact that we have in, in only very few small pockets in the world are there carbon taxes or, or cap and trade systems. Um, what is that number? Is there is there a sort of a magic number where uh, the chemical processes or the bio the bioprocesses become very profitable and will scale at? Is it ten dollars a ton? Is it fifty dollars a ton? Have you guys modeled what uh, it will take to sort of really kickstart these markets to achieve some global scale? Sure. So the the Earth Challenge hasn't, but this is the the exercise that a lot of the integrated assessment models that the UN has relied on in in their reports they have looked at these. Um, it, usually it has to be greater than $50 a ton, uh, but, but these costs, again, are, are highly uncertain that in many cases, there, there really aren't any large-scale biomass power plants that have CCS on them. So it, it's hard to say how much the removal will cost per ton. And th- these are really just best guesses right now. So it's when we look at carbon markets today, they're they hover around $10 a ton in, in major markets. And in order for these integrated models to start building large-scale carbon-negative systems, the prices usually have to be 5 to 10 times higher than they currently are. And David, any comment on that? Sure. And in relation to carbon prices, people much, much cleverer than ourselves have made the academic argument before that if you if you if you have these systems or activities that are showing this this scalable sustainable gigaton scale way of physically extracting co2 from the atmosphere and can have a very clear cost associated with that you could then maybe go and, and wave that at your your carbon market legislators and say well look guys um, here's, a, here's a system that physically costs me x dollars per ton to remove one ton of CO2 from the atmosphere. So you should have a floor in your carbon price of at least X dollars per ton because that's that's the physical cost of dealing with this problem. That's that's a that's a fascinating sort of thought process there. I haven't hadn't had a, any arguments like that before where until carbon costs what it takes to remove, then the market won't sort of settle on what the true cost of removing carbon is from the atmosphere. So uh, I love that. Is there, has there been any traction that you've seen in, in that argument as far as gaining some, some traction, be it in the EU carbon market or in other carbon markets that exist? I think that argument is largely theoretical right now, just because that, that ceiling price on carbon set by carbon removal is, is uncertain. Mm-hmm. That what, if you look at $10 a ton prices right now, Many of these approaches that have significant scale potential that could provide that sort of safety valve for carbon pricing, it's really uncertain what that price would be. It's likely, likely it, probably on the order of magnitude of $100 a ton. So it, whether this argument has gotten traction yet, it, isn't, it really hasn't come up because there hasn't been a, a viable solution that is within the reach of the projected carbon prices over the next several decades, which is is really why it's so important for us to get additional research and development to help bring down the cost of these technologies. So it can be one of these, a piece of the conversation when we're talking about national and international carbon markets to 
to really provide a, a safety valve from preventing these prices from getting too high and causing more economic damage than than we would want. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's it's not only important for for the research and development, but I think the the Virgin Earth Challenge itself is important in drawing attention. And and even if it's just Richard Branson and Al Gore pointing a giant finger and saying this is an area that the world should pay more attention to, and here's a pot of money that we're putting aside to help make that happen. I think that alone inspires people and makes them aware uh, of where some of these opportunities in energy and where some of these opportunities in in climate mitigation really are. So uh, it, it's fascinating to to hear from you both that there's such a, a defined understanding of the sort of social and behavioral aspects to this issue, as well as the technical and economic uh, aspects to this. Sure, you know, and I think that was a lot of the, the, the thought behind why it was important to set up a, a prize incentive rather than uh, just making an investment or, you know, a, a RFP or something, you know, which, which are both extremely useful tools, but because this area is so... At a systems level, uncertain to various degrees, and not not exactly the most uh, politically straightforward issue to discuss either. You know, the whole point of the prizes is that well, we we take this seriously enough to put a a twenty five dollar prize on the table, but we also take it seriously enough to have a very strict set of criteria behind it. You know. It, you, it's not like the X Factor or something where you just pick your favorite at a particular moment in time. You know, you've got to show life cycle removal potential, reasonable economics, environmental impacts, social license to operate, all those sort of things that, that sit behind something as having that, that, that appropriate level of confidence and being able to get to a big sustainable scale in the future. You know, we want to say, hey, hey, guys, these, this thing or these things who won the Earth Challenge and here's all the reasons why, you know, here's why they are a, a scalable, sustainable way of extracting carbon from the atmosphere. And and before we go, uh, one of the things I wanted to, to touch on is a little bit more about some of the technologies and the portfolio companies uh, within the Virgin Earth Challenge. Uh, our audience loves the sort of weird and crazy uh, ideas and, and the, the theoretical arguments and, and, and technologies that exist out there. So um, maybe to throw back to you, Noah, uh, what are some of the, the other sort of technologies that we haven't touched on yet that are really sort of scratching at a, a totally new, new area of carbon removal? Or what are some of the theoretical technologies that you've seen in some of your work? Sure. So there, there are really two more branches down this, this chemical tree of, of carbon removal that are, are really interesting. One is called uh, enhanced weathering. And it essentially takes the concept of mining large quantities of rocks that when exposed to ambient air or seawater will naturally react with the CO2 and sequester those CO2 molecules in a solid rock form. So one can envision one day where there are large mining operations dedicated to digging up and pulverizing rocks and spreading those rocks in a way that that expose them to ambient air such that they react with that air, take the CO2 out and sequester that CO2 in a in a rock form that remains such um, a solid form for centuries. And this is, is really enticing because it's filled with these types of, of rocks and they're potentially not that difficult to mine. The only problem is there isn't much of a business model today for going out and digging massive holes and, and crushing up lots of rocks without having stronger carbon prices. So this type of enhanced weathering approach is definitely struggling to demonstrate the, the economic viability aspect. But some of the, the other chemical approaches are really interesting on the, the economic viability. So there are a number of, of companies out there today that are seeking to use CO2 in the creation of cement and plastics and other types of materials that could potentially hold great potential for taking carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it in a solid form for a a long time. 
And these these companies definitely have a, a proven end-use market for these, these technologies. The world, I believe, about 5% of global CO2 emissions are due to cement production alone. So imagine if you could not only take away those emissions, but make cement an actual, a negative contributor to to global emissions. It would be a really amazing feat. And there are a number of companies out there today trying to make this this vision a reality. That's that's fascinating. And and you can sort of envision that once we get to the point where pulverizing rocks to expose them to CO2 becomes economically viable, we're probably making pretty good traction on tackling some climate issues as a society. Well, that brings us to an end for this interview, and I really wanted to thank Noah and David for joining us today. For anyone that's interested in learning more, uh, Noah has a blog that he runs at carbonremoval.wordpress.com, and you can check out virginearth.com for more information on the Virgin Earth Challenge, and they have an amazing blog that covers a lot of the progress of individual companies and the progress on the challenge itself. So thank you so much for joining us, David and Noah, and we hope to have you back uh, once the actual prize is awarded to one of the companies. Yeah, and thank you, Sean. It was a pleasure. Our next interview is with Konica Sunkalp of Sunkalp Energy. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm excited to welcome Kanika Sunkalp, who's the founder of Sunkalp Energy and one of the top young entrepreneurs in India focusing on solar. So please join me in welcoming Kanika to the show. Thanks Kanika, for having me, Sean. Kanika, to, to kick things off, can you can you give us the the overview? What is Sunkalp Energy uh, and, and what was your inspiration to start this? Right. Um, so Sunkalp Energy is a uh, company that focuses on rooftop solar power solutions in India. Um, and uh, our niche area is schools or educational institutions. Um, we provide uh, engineering, procurement, and construction um, along with uh, stakeholder education um, to these educational institutions in India for their own solar power plants. And and and, uh, and what what is it about the the school and the education market that you found has been a, a strong niche for you? Um. So, uh, as everybody knows, solar power is an um, is a very expensive technology. It is getting cheaper and more affordable, but uh, there needs to be um, several inspirations or motivations for a customer to go for solar. And um, in this area, not only are schools looking forward to setting an example with a green technology, obviously they save money on their electricity bills when they install solar, but then... Uh, they are also proud of setting an example, um, showing the students um, that they are taking the initiative, um, making a change. Um, so yeah, we are able to uh, basically tap into those, uh, tap into and serve those multiple motivations. And and what is the long term vision for Suncop? Where do you see the yourself, and where do you see the organization being in five and ten years from now? Um, so. Five years, or maybe if I focus a little bit shorter term, around three years, in our geography, which is northern and central India, we'd like to be the go-to company for solar power for um, schools. And um, the market is really quite big. There are a lot of uh, schools and educational institutions in India that are looking to uh, basically have a difference or um, set themselves apart from other schools. So uh, the vision is to be able to uh, be the go-to company and also to be able to add value um, uh, to our customers in several respects. So when we do EPC or when we uh, give solar power solutions to uh, these schools, we're not just doing it like that. We're trying to make it uh, like an activity for students in the sense that um, they can take part in the energy audit. They can understand how it's all happening so we want to be able to share our knowledge as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I look a little longer term, um, we're already trying to expand geography. So we're setting up an office in Western India, um, in Mumbai. Um, so that's the next um, next thing, that right? slowly we uh, take to different parts of the country and um, for the long term, maybe go international at some point of time. Yeah. 
And and what was the the inspiration for you in in starting the business? Uh, what was your sort of spark or your moment where you realized that you wanted to do this with the next five to ten to twenty years of your life? Right. Um, so I, looking back, it's not just one moment. Maybe that one moment is uh, the spark, really. But uh, everything in your life is leading you towards that one passion. So um, uh, my uh, previous company where I worked, um, come in there, is a very environmentally conscious company. Um, we were always hearing about uh, uh, environmental norms and EPA, and uh, we worked on emission solutions. Um, and then around that same time in India, the government launched the Jawaharlal Nehru National Solar Mission, um, which called forward entrepreneurs, which... Um, uh, you know, really started the whole solar uh, movement in India. And then the third thing that was happening was that um, my father or my family, they were looking at solar as an investment option. So it was really the perfect storm. And at that time in my life, I felt like I had uh, learned enough from my existing job and I wanted to have a larger impact. Um, and this 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 just seemed like the right opportunity at that time. Um, and, uh, also, Elon Musk... <laughs> He's, uh, he's, he's been an inspiration with Solar City. So those are all of the little pieces of the puzzle that, you know, uh, were in place at that time and uh, hence Sankal came into being. I think Elon Musk is an inspiration to almost all of us in the energy space. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and you've touched on this a little bit, but I, I wanted to get your thoughts on what you see Sunculp's competitive advantage being or sort of how you see yourselves competing uh, despite solar being an expensive technology. It's something that there's a huge amount of uh, both startup organizations and entrenched organizations that are that are playing in this space. And so how do you see uh, yourselves differentiating or competing long-term in this industry? Right. Um, so one of the things is that we are uh, very aggressively focusing on this uh, educational institution niche. So um, at this point of time, we have um, you know co- completed audits and collected data from almost a hundred schools, and um, all that data enables us. So we are a data-driven uh, company. All that data enables us to really understand our niches, requirements, even before we walk into a school, for example, just by uh, looking at the facility, by understanding number of students, we can say that this solution would fit them the best. Um, and the second thing that we are focusing on is technology. Uh, I hadn't mentioned this previously, but um, uh, in the rooftop solar segment in India, things such as uh, tracking, things such as film, which are great for the Indian environment, uh, you know, the Indian weather conditions, all of those are not the, it's more the commercial photovoltaic, uh, regular polycrystalline, fixed mounting structure kind of systems that are coming in. So we're trying to bring this uh, technology that's already there in the megawatt scale segment into the rooftop scale segment so that uh, the um, customers can get the most out of their power plant. So solar is not just about solar panels. It's about the entire setup. And um, if you optimize the angle, if you optimize the tracking, all of this, those things can really uh, give more um, back mm-hmm. in terms of energy generation. Perfect. So that's... I think that's where we are focusing quite heavily. Yeah. No, that sounds great. And it sounds like you guys have a very, very targeted focus uh, and know mm-hmm. who your customer is and, and how to reach them. So that's wonderful to hear. Um, the the next sort of question I wanted to ask you is in a bit of a different track. Um from an outsider's perspective, India is such a fascinating market. It's It's got such a large population. It's uh, a, become a fast growth market. Uh, and there's just a lot going on. But there's also seems to be, with all the opportunities, also some challenges around uh, sort of bureaucracy and red tape and, and regulation. And so uh, I just wanted to get your insider's viewpoint on what is it like doing business in India? And what are some of the challenges that you face day to day being an entrepreneur working in energy in India? Right. Um, so India is a very traditional, conservative kind of market. Um, all that red tape is there for a reason. I mean, they, uh, a new a startup, for example, the startup culture is not very active or vibrant uh, as it is in the United States, for example, on the West Coast. It's uh, it, They're uh, typically a little closed to new young companies. Um, younger companies uh, aren't given projects that easily, even though your ideas and your 
backing and your technology may be great. Uh, they're just conservative in that um, they like to have companies that have been around there for a long time. Or you literally have to uh, put your time in to be uh, accepted in India. <laughs> Um, and a lot of the solar business happens through the tendering process. So uh, government tenders and uh, the requirements for those tenders are extremely stringent um, in, in the sense that um, uh, you have to show balance sheets for multiple years. And if you're a startup, you've obviously not been there for multiple years. You have to show turnover of several um, million dollars or hundred thousand dollars. And uh, again, a startup cannot show all those credentials. So startups miss out on a lot of that business. Um, and uh, but but that being said, uh, the reason the the fact that we are focusing on the educational sector that is more open to new things. Um, and they're willing to try out. They're willing to you know open their doors to younger folks who have a vision, who are passionate about what they're doing. So um, that really helped us. Our, our niche. Um, we feel like we were able to serve our niche uh, very well. Mm-hmm. And um, that being said, now that we've put in our time, we've been around for a couple of years, we are able to show a lot more credentials. We are able to, you know, get some uh, of the government business as well. Mm-hmm. That's great. And and how do you how do you find that you deal with these challenges? Uh, we're always interested in entrepreneur stories, and and one of the the pieces of information I'm sure our student audience would love is just a sense of uh, when you run into roadblocks or red tape or bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you mm-hmm. how do you sort of harness that and, and deal with that and overcome that and not let it defeat you? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that I have found extremely valuable is uh, having a mentor and identifying a mentor. Um, uh, who would be able to, you know, guide you through, would be able to connect you to the right kind of circles um, uh, with their network, within their network. Uh, That has really helped um, overcome a lot of challenges. If you have a mentor who can recommend you in places um, or, uh, you know, who really believes in what you're doing and uh, talks about it, um, it's sort of an evangelist for your business, that helps in overcoming a lot of challenges. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's that's been one of the ways. And um, some of the challenges are just there. You have to just bide your time and you know wait for the time to be right and be persistent. Mm-hmm. Uh, patience and persistence—they're two two positive character traits for entrepreneurs. <laughs> that is right. And uh, actually, entrepreneurs are the most. Uh, volatile, uh, chaotic people, I would say. So yeah, those come difficult. You really have to work on those two. You seem very, you seem very calm and collected. So I wouldn't picture you as being volatile. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, and you wouldn't have said that a couple years ago. Probably. <laughs> uh, and then the, the, the other sort of question I wanted to, to finish off with is, is just to get your sense of the Indian economy. So energy is is always sort of uh, explicitly tied to the economic activities of any society. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just wanted your thoughts on on where you see the the Indian economy with the new prime minister coming in. What effect has that had on the business community? Um, and really just give those who don't have an intimate view of what's going on inside of India a sense of where you see the economy going over the next five years. Great. Um I would say that uh, the, uh, the the new Prime Minister, Mr. Narendra Modi, he has had an extremely positive impact on my business. And it's literally, uh, there's been a stark change. So ever since uh, he came into power about three months ago, um, business was quite was quiet last year. And the, just a month he came into power, we've had um, almost 100 inbound requests through our website without even marketing. Um, so... That just says that there's a general positivity in the um, in the entire market, and everybody. He, uh, Narendra Modi historically has promoted solar in his state in Gujarat. Um, he's really backed it up. Gujarat has the largest solar power plant in Asia, and um, 600 megawatts. So uh, that being said, he he has brought a lot of positive impact to the business in general. Um, and the people, they believe in him, they believe in his vision. So even if he really does nothing, <laughs> it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I, I didn't know the market runs on sentiment. So the sentiment is very, very positive. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm extremely excited that he, uh, he's here. Um, and his uh, he's also merged uh, the two uh, ministries. He's merged the Ministry of New and Renewable Energy and the Ministry of Power. So uh, previously, the two ministries, uh, Ministry of New and Renewable Energy, which actually promoted solar, it may have had a different agenda from the Ministry of Power. But uh, now it's a unified vision. Um, it's the uh, uh, Mr. Piyush Goyal, uh, the minister, is um, under the tutelage of Mr. Narendra Modi. Uh, they're really driving the right kind of policies. They are promoting local manufacturing in all segments, including solar. So uh, I, I think it's the whole thing is going to grow. Everybody knows that all future wars would be fought over energy, energy and water and uh, basic uh, supplies. So... Uh, they're really trying to make India um, energy secure and self-reliant. Perfect. Well, I absolutely loved getting a chance to pick your brain and and we just wish you the best of luck uh, from the whole student energy organization and, and our members. And, and I think we'd love to have you Thank back you in so a few much. few years to hear sort of how your your progress has been and, and how the sort of momentum that you've got with the, the organization carries through. So I uh, just wanted to say, say a big thank you from our side and, and wish you the best of luck. Um, and I must comment that um, what you are doing is excellent. Um, more uh, students out there need to be inspired to become entrepreneurs because really entrepreneurs lead the way in the future. So uh, really congratulations on what you're doing. Thank you so much, Kanika. Thank you. Take care. Have a great day. Bye. Our last segment of the night is an interview with Lior Rothschild, the founder of Dig Events. Next up on Energy Voices, we've got the founder of Dig Events, Lior Rothschild, who's one of the original supporters of Student Energy. So welcome to the show, Lior. Thank you, Sean. It's such a pleasure to be here. So, so a little bit of background on for our listeners about Lior. So Lior was actually... Uh, has been involved in the organization since the very inception. Uh, he was a key speaker and participant in the very first International Student Energy Summit back in 2009, uh, participated and moderated sessions at ISIS in 2011 in Vancouver. Uh, I believe he was the very first board member we approached about joining the board when we uh, set up Student Energy as an organization. So uh, Lior has been a huge supporter from the very beginning uh, and can legitimately claim he's been in since day one with the organization. <laughs> so it's a point of pride in our organization. To, to have had Lior involved from the very start. Um, and so what we're going to do today is uh, we're going to do a bit of an overview on Lior's business, which is Dig Events. Uh, and also we're going to have him guest host uh, this month's version of Energy Hacks. So Lior, maybe kick us off with a bit of background on, on who you are, what Dig Events is, and, and why you started that business. Okay. Well, thank you, Sean. Uh, Dig Events is really... A, an event management company with uh, an environmental twist. So we organize events uh, that have a very strong focus on minimizing the footprint or creating a zero waste event. But we also get hired by large special events organizations. So think of Calgary Folk Festival, Calgary Stampede, and many other uh, prominent organizations in town that uh, that you would think of that are highlights of, of your, your year perhaps that hire us to bring in all kinds of programs that uh, help to move these events to minimizing their waste and uh, and engaging the audience in new, unexpected ways. And, and what was the inspiration for you to start that business? Why, why did you see that as a market that needed to be addressed? Well, so my background is in oil and gas. I've been working in the oil and gas sector on sustainability issues for seven years. And I was always really interested in this idea of how change actually takes place. And that led me to all kinds of things. And certainly I have seen that talking to people <laughs> does make a difference. And being in the oil and gas industry put me in front of all kinds of people from all walks of life, whether that was through my community relations work uh, in, in the field or whether that was doing presentations to executives and and, uh, um, and working with the uh, World Petroleum Council Youth Committee, which is what originally put me in contact with Student Energy and, and why I was so excited. I was just like, this is a group that's like uh, affecting the change that I'm, I'm hoping to, uh, to contribute to in, in this sector. 
And so it was kind of a natural marriage that way. But this idea of how change actually takes place led me to think not only of sort of change in an, in an industry, uh, in an organizational setting, but also in the point of view of um, actually developing some kind of social enterprise that um, is able to affect behavior. And from my volunteer work, uh, working with the Calgary Folk Festival, I saw just what a huge amount of waste actually uh, is left behind when when thousands of people leave a, a fantastic event like that, you know, whether it's through bottled water or whether it's through all the stuff winding up in the landfill, it's kind of heartbreaking when you see it behind the scenes. And it's, once you see that, it's, it's hard to look away. And so I thought this is a real need that, that nobody else is addressing. I remember the, the very first time I organized a conference and we stuffed delegate bags, so mm. that the little takeaway bag that you get at most events. I was blown away at just the, the pyramid of boxes of swag and items and how much of it is individually wrapped. So you get right. even sometimes the water bottles you'll get will be individually wrapped in plastic that you then have to chuck away a whole garbage bag full of plastic. So it is it blows my mind how much uh, waste and materials are required for almost every event that we host. Right. And for, for most large events, uh, just putting the event on just, you know, getting the financial resources in place to to execute the event. I mean, these are the primary focus and making sure it's a good quality event, and it should be. Uh, so I thought it was kind of a neat idea to come in and say, hey, I'm an event organizer. I've got lots of experience organizing events. Why don't you bring me on board to your team early enough so that I can actually have an influence in looking at some of your procurement decisions and uh, and rolling out all kinds of recycling and compost programs uh, again that in, that engage people so that it's not just we're doing some fun stuff behind the scenes trust us we're doing great it's actually getting the audience involved in that process and then giving people options besides just expensive bottled water that has uh, a big environmental footprint and and how have you found the the market demand for your services? Is this something that is on the consciousness of most large event and festival organizers? Uh, has it, is it were, were they waiting for a service like you? Just give us a sense of what the market for your business has been. My theory on this is, well, first of all, yes, it's definitely, we've been busy. So the demand is growing and uh, and we're, we're seeing that audiences are demanding this, that event organizers are... Are looking for this, so it, there's a good news story there. But, but even more than that, what I've realized is that nobody doesn't want to do the right thing. It's just a matter of really making it easy for people and providing a value-added service. And I think when you when you develop a business model that uh, people are able to say that makes sense, I I could see where that would fit in my into my budget especially when it comes to things like waste, it's amazing to me how people have like maybe seven or more line items in their budget that relate to waste in some way, and they don't even realize that. And then when you're able to work closely with these people, you're, you know, and you say, why don't you take those seven line items, turn them into one, give it to us, and we'll sort of manage the whole process for you. And it, it's a huge value added service to people you not only are you in, engaging the audience, we, we set up these waste stations so that um, every time somebody uh, goes to throw something away, they interact with a human who, who, you know, an ambassador who helps them separate their waste. We make sure that that, that engagement is really uh, positive. We make sure that the diversion rate for the event overall is really impressive, something that the event organizers would want to publicize. And we make sure that it all goes to the right place at the end of the event, and and is the you know the the site is is left spotless. That's fascinating, and and I love the the comment around. There's no one that doesn't want to do the right thing, mm -hmm. and I think we've heard that from a number of guests on Energy Voices that uh, we need to make it easy for people to engage with sustainability or to engage in uh, a transition to a more sustainable energy system because everybody at the end of the day do value jobs, they value the economy and they value the environment. There's no one that 
hates the environment or mm-hmm. there's no one that hates prosperity. It's just this idea of how do we do things in a way that make it easy to do the right thing. So I love that motto. I, I agree, Sean. And, and I think that at the end of the day, there are certain truths about humans, which is that we can be frightened by change. And uh, when we are faced with options, typically we go to the one that is less expensive. Mm-hmm. These, these, these are some universal truths that I'm learning. And so, yeah, it might be about price, but it's usually more about value. How much value is this going to bring you? Does it relieve some of your headaches? Well, how much money is that worth to you? And, uh, and so these are the kind of conversations that we're having. And, and uh, I think that as we're appearing at more and more events and conferences and, uh, and all kinds of special events, people are going to these events saying, Wow, that's surprising. Why don't they hire Dig to to green up this event? You know, I was at this other event that, you know, everything was composted or recycled, and we had free wa- water from these mobile water stations. Why are we getting gouged here for everything? Mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, well, I'm going to switch gears now, and uh, what we want to do is. We've had a recurring segment on Energy Voices called Energy Hacks, which is ways for individuals to reduce their energy consumption. Uh, What we want to do with having Lior in studio is to uh, switch this up and do an event-themed Energy Hacks piece. Um, So we're going to turn it over to Lior, and he's going to guest host Energy Hacks. Hi, Lior here. Uh, So happy to be hosting this segment of Energy Hacks and really proud to be uh, affiliated with this group, Student Energy, and all the fantastic work that they do. One of the ways that I've really come into this is uh, from energy issues, but my focus these days is really about um, helping uh, large special events minimize their footprint, mostly focusing on waste and water issues. And the reason for that is because I've really been learning that waste is a a really powerful way to get people thinking about their consumption habits once they understand where they're, how much waste they're producing and where it all goes. People tend to want to look for other options. And some of the things that I've learned is that, uh, you know, each Canadian on average produces more than two kilograms of waste each day. It's 30 million tons of waste in total each year. And as Canadians, we have one of the largest footprints on the planet when it comes to, you know, both our our energy consumption, which you've probably heard a lot about that on on this show, but also waste and water consumption, which all are related. Water, uh, waste, and energy all have um, a a strong relationship with each other. If you're consuming a lot of one, you're consuming a lot of the other. Uh, We're we're producing probably twice as much as, as countries like Japan and it may be a little bit better than uh, our, our neighbors to the south in the U.S., but certainly from um, from a per capita point of view, uh, we have we have a lot of room for improvement. And the landfills where we're sending a lot of our waste are reaching their capacity, and um, it's becoming increasingly difficult to find new sites for new landfills. One other really interesting thing to note is that landfills are also a really significant source of uh, Canada's methane emissions. So methane is 24 times more potent than uh, a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And 25% of our country's methane is actually produced from landfills. So when food waste, for example, is winding up in our landfills, it goes through this anaerobic process. It's sort of like fermentation. The, the microbes uh, break down the material, but without any oxygen in the process because it's really compressed and that then seeps out uh, as methane gas but when we create a different process when we actually um, look at what we're consuming sending it to the right places and making sure that as much of it is recycled and as much of it is composted what we're seeing is that we're able to uh, first of all make sure that we're not emitting methane into the atmosphere that we're also decreasing the amount of input energy, water, uh, uh, and, and other materials that are going into into these processes, and uh, 
you know, and just on that point, you know, I, I, there was a 2009 study that showed that uh, food waste accounts for 300 barrels of oil and 25% of fresh water supply each year. And it's pretty amazing to think that we're, we're having so much input into the, the food that we're producing. So much of it is, is then, uh, one, being wasted, two, winding up in our landfill and then rotting and, uh, and emitting these harmful gases into our, into our atmosphere. So, so um, that kind of leads me to some, some of the other things that we're working on, which is, uh, you know, we've talked about water issues uh, and how they relate to waste and energy. So a lot of what DIG is trying to do is help to create easy processes for people to um, divert their waste away from the landfill and also provide a re- uh, an opportunity to return to the tap, to have uh, people either fill up their own water bottles or, or fountains uh, that have tap water that, uh, that rehydrate people rather than gouging people on, on bottled water. Uh, because it's very expensive and essentially a lot of what happens is that there's a lot of energy input into uh, uh, you know turning fossil fuels into plastic for for bottled water uh, transporting it uh, far distances which obviously has a lot of uh, environmental impacts and essentially what uh, many of these companies are doing is getting volume discounts on getting municipally treated water and uh, that that water is actually subsidized by us as taxpayers. We're, we're paying taxes to our government to, to have some of the best technology in the world. So right here in, in Canada and, and in uh, places like Alberta where, where we have clean water uh, and, uh, and sophisticated technology uh, piping it right to our tap. But instead we're, we're allowing uh, companies to slap a logo on it, uh, mark it up by a percentage of several thousands and uh, and selling it back to us and um, and for some reason that's become a bit of a fashion statement in our society and so um, so here's a couple of tips that I wanted to uh, leave you with today uh, that uh, maybe will help you think about some of these waste and water issues a little bit differently uh, courtesy of of some of the work that that dig has been doing and the first thing is really to help you think about um, your waste footprint so is if you were to ask yourself how much waste do i produce per year it's typically a question that most of us don't know the answer to but it's actually not very hard to figure out if you actually just weigh your waste um three consecutive weeks in a a row before the uh uh the the curbside recycling program takes it away from you you can actually figure out an average once you figure out your, your average waste, and, 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 and I recommend just literally um, getting a household scale, uh, picking up your garbage and standing on it, and then subtract your own waste from it, your own weight from it, so that you can figure out how much that, that garbage weighs. Once you know what's in it, then you can start to think about, okay, does it all need to be in here? Can it be separated? And some of the things that keep winding up here on a regular basis, do I really need to buy this much packaging? And and it gets you to think about your consumption, but it also gets you thinking about um, whether everything actually needs to be going to the landfill. And I say landfill because so a lot of a lot of what we talk about at Dig and a lot of the work that we do with events is it, it has nothing to do with technology. It's about uh, it's about talking to people in in different ways and and um, and helping to realize where all this is going and so we don't label waste bins as garbage we label them landfill and i think that that helps people to and, and it helps me certainly uh, at, at my home to really remember that oh yeah should i be sending this to the landfill and so labeling uh, garbage i think is a really good idea and um, strategically positioning it even in the home uh, we do that at special events but even in in my own home i I do it so that the uh, the landfill bin is less convenient to get to than my recycling or my compost bin. Uh, so once once you do that, you have your your kind of waste footprint uh, that you can calculate on a weekly and then extrapolate that to monthly and yearly. Uh, then you can set some goals of of decreasing that, diverting more of it. And one easy goal that I think makes a huge difference is going styrofoam free. So hey. 
fair enough, styrofoam may still be around in our society, but it doesn't need to be in my home. And uh, just getting rid of styrofoam alone, I think, has a huge, uh, a huge benefit both from energy inputs and uh, waste and, and methane being released into the atmosphere. Um, as well, um, actually avoiding uh, uh, contamination of, you know, uh, so if you're composting and separating your recycling, you don't want stuff that belongs in the landfill to wind up in there. And so actually doing some education around what goes where and, and some of that is city specific. So for example, in Calgary, we have a bit of a technical flaw in the recycling depot that doesn't allow us to uh, recycle uh, plastic cups because the system can't differentiate between uh, plastic cups and cups with a plastic coating like coffee cups. So all of it gets wind up, goes, winds up in the landfill. Understanding some of these technical uh, um, minutiae does help to ensure that um, it's really pure compost, really pure recycling uh, that you're producing and it all goes to the right place. None of it gets thrown away. When it comes to composting, uh, I, I actually keep my compost in the freezer at home and I find that that's a good way to make sure I don't get fruit flies in my house and so I recommend that but uh, uh, certainly the compost that I produce it, it, it all goes to my garden but if you don't have a garden I recommend uh, packaging it up in little baggies and giving it to uh, giving it away as gifts to people who do garden um, but if you you know and if you live in a um, in an apartment where it's uh, it's a little harder to have a garden perhaps I recommend this uh, this stuff called Bokashi compost, which can be picked up for $10 at uh, uh, Green Calgary's Eco Store here in Calgary. And it, it doesn't have any smell like a vermicomposting does, which I've got some experience with and I had a big fail, so I didn't, I didn't go back to vermicomposting. But also, um, yeah, I guess the last thing, uh, the last tip I wanna leave you with is around bottled water. Uh, choosing to not go with bottled water saves, uh, it can save up to 117 billion barrels of oil annually if, if we all did that uh, collectively. Um, it's really important to understand that when it comes to, pl to plastic water bottles, only 40% of them actually get recycled. And so, so many of them wind up in our waterways. And so I think making a personal choice not to contribute to that makes a big difference. And uh, when you start thinking along those lines of what you can personally contribute to on a consumption level and, and, and making different consumption choices, I think that it helps us to really be the change in an over-consuming world and, uh, and thinking of ways where we could buy things used or buy things local, grow it ourselves, repair things ourselves, or turn what was once thought of as junk into art or, or gifts that uh, we would normally buy for people but that we could make ourselves. For tuning in for another episode of energy voices if you haven't yet make sure to remember to subscribe to the podcast in itunes or your favorite podcast aggregator as always please share your thoughts or comment on future ideas you have for shows using hashtag energy voices on twitter and on facebook